Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees. And it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google certificates. Hi, it's Jamie, Progressive's Employee of the Month, two months in a row. Leave a message at the... Hey, Jamie. It's me, Jamie. Do not forget to buy lentils, or the lentil soup you're making for dinner will be sorely lacking. By the way, Mrs. Calloway says thanks for helping her bundle home and auto. She appreciates the extra savings, even though you kept using the word apropos incorrectly. But the main thing is do not forget to buy, uh, what was it? Something apropos, the lentil soup. Sorry, I'll call you back. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Discounts not available in all states or situations. Hi, and welcome to our podcast, The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with the bipartisan firm Purple Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with the firm Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls driving the latest news in politics, tech, entertainment, and pop culture. Uh, this week we had the Iowa caucuses. You may have heard something happened in Iowa on Monday night. We are here to break down all of the results, talk about what it tells us about the accuracy of polls, and we'll go ahead and look ahead to New Hampshire, which is coming up next week. We'll also dig into polls on feminism and how people think about the quote-unquote women's movement, um, as well as taking a look at some polling about millennials in the workplace. And finally, this weekend, the big game turns 50. We will talk about polling on the Super Bowl. So our number of the week this week, uh, according to a poll conducted by Bloomberg and Purple Strategies, uh, 40 percent of Trump voters said that they would continue to support him even if he shot someone. Yes. This comes from Trump giving a speech where he made a joke where he said, haha, my, my poll numbers are so good. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot someone and they still wouldn't leave me. And that we put that in the question wording. People won't leave me even if I shoot someone. Yeah. Knowing that, if Trump shot someone, would you leave him? And 30 percent said, I'm not sure. <laughs> I'll have to get back to you about that. <laughs> so you know what? Trump wasn't wrong. Right? Only 31% of his supporters would leave him if he shot someone. The flip side of this in our number of the week is that about a quarter of gov federal government employees said that they would consider leaving their jobs if Donald Trump were to become president. Um, this was one of the most exciting things on our Facebook feed at the pollsters. Um, it, I think it beats man sneaks into Lund's focus group. <laughs> That was our high water mark. <laughs> yes. Or Trump uh, authoritarians uh, support Trump. Um, so about a quarter of uh, government employees said, you know what, if I would either definitely leave or I would consider leaving if he became president. So turning now to what actually happened this week in Iowa. So obviously, for the first time, we were listening to actual voters as opposed to listening to pollsters. And it seemed like what the voters were trying to tell us were that the polls were wrong, that the pollsters were wrong. That seemed to be really big news. I mean, to catch people up on Monday, there was the first set of voting, the caucuses in Iowa, different than a primary because people have to go and 
basically vote in person and collaborate and convince their fellow uh, caucus goers to uh, to vote for the same uh, person as they do. And uh, there were basically five winners. Clinton and Sanders came to essentially a near draw, though Clinton emerged as the final victor. And on the Republican side, there were three top candidates, Cruz, followed by Trump and then Rubio. So five televised speeches on Monday night, which made for a very long night. And it was a slightly different from expectations. The last few weeks going into the caucuses showed a tied race on the Democratic side. Some showed Sanders up, some showed Clinton up, but the forecasts suggested that Clinton had the advantage, and indeed she did. Um, it was essentially dead on. And then on the Republican side, most surveys and tr- and forecasts had Trump as the winner, followed by Cruz and then Rubio, who seemed to be on the rise, um, you know, after a strong debate de- performance and endorsement of from the Des Moines Register, the the local paper. Um, but and then you had party establishments seem to be lining up behind Trump or at least against Cruz, like Bob Dole and the Republican governor of the state and others. So then um, it's, you know, seemed in that light of all of that, a little bit of a surprise that Trump came in second. I mean, did you find folks on the right, Kristen, really shocked by what was happening and did they blame did they blame pollsters there's always been a little bit of doubt in the minds of, of folks uh you've heard me on this show have this doubt that is trump really as strong as the polls say he is that even polls that are as great as ann selzer's you know that have this great track record are they still capturing too many people who uh are trump supporters but they're never really going to participate in something like the caucus and so the idea that Cruz would overperform, that Cruz had a ground game and turnout operation that was going to cause him to be understated in the polls and that Trump's support may have been a little more ephemeral, um, a little bit shakier than the polls would suggest. Uh, in one sense, it's like you can go back and say, oh, well, this is completely unsurprising. On the other hand, I mean, earlier in the week, uh, Cruz was only, I think, at a 7% in these uh, online betting markets um, to be the Republican nominee. Uh, You know, it's kind of bizarre to think that the person who's about to surge in Iowa would only be at 7% while Trump would still be, you know, sort of dominating in these betting markets. So uh, on those metrics, Cruz overperformed. He certainly overperformed compared to the polls. But if you were always a skeptic about the polls, then the result probably didn't surprise you. Um, what the polls did capture, though, was the rise of Rubio. So it's kind of fascinating. The polls did catch the rise of Rubio. And they picked up a decline for Cruz a little bit. Um, and, and what we will never really know is maybe the polls were right and there was just more movement that happened afterwards or is it that the polls were always wrong that Cruz was always way ahead of the pack and that the decline was real um but we've just sort of ignored it now because well he still won and he won by a lot and that's surprising and so onward we go I mean I think the thing that is interesting it not just from as uh, watching politics, but watching polling and political polling is how quickly people wanted to just say, oh, my God, the polls are a disaster, total failure. People were <laughs> tweeting, you know, this is a, just another sign that the industry is vulnerable. That was a, a story I saw uh, today. Um, Donald Trump, always our favorite 
uh, polling analyst, <laughs> certainly yet to come on our show, despite his, uh, his uh, despite how much he likes to talk about polling. But he tweeted out today. He did a lot of trolling of Cruz today on Twitter. Ted Cruz didn't win Iowa. He stole it. That's why all of the polls were so wrong, and why he got far more more votes than anticipated. Bad <laughs> with an exclamation point, just in case you weren't sure how he felt about that. It's bad. So he's not really talking about the polling being bad per se, it sounds like, to dissect this, but more about Cruz than it is about the polling here. But it still reflects this sense of something went horribly wrong. And lots of people have been doing a lot of hand-wringing. You have a piece in Medium that goes through this, and your firm ha- also has a, another piece going into the analytics. I mean, uh, we've found together as we've been looking through all of the data and all the theories and all the explanations, a few different trends. Um, so the first one is this simply, this, as you mentioned, Kristen, the ground game is just harder to capture. It's just simply harder to capture in a telephone poll what is a very public, in-person event like a caucus. And that Cruz in particular and Iowa in general, it, that's that's what the Iowa caucuses are. Is it's a it's a forum that rewards uh, an extensive organization, which is something that Cruz has had for a long time. It's something that Trump has not had. He's been sort of tweeting his way uh, through these contests, and that's not what Iowa is about. I mean, you ha- you it really is about getting you know mobilizing people, making sure they know how to caucus. You can you can't you don't caucus all day like you do with voting when you just can go vote any time that day. You have to go at a specific amount of time at night. It takes longer than going to vote at the polls. Um, it's a it's a different kind of public act than voting. And polling may just not be as well suited to capture that quite as precisely as it might with voting, which is, you know, you, you have you have the same sort of confidentiality that you do perhaps in a telephone poll, particularly when it comes to in Iowa, the role of evangelicals, which were a real source of uh, of Cruz's success. That's really where he excelled. And there was a higher proportion, a record high percentage, according to the entrance polls of people who said that they were evangelical than past and, Republican polls. Yeah. And this was a part of, so Ann Selzer, because the, the ultimate, you know, we have long, we've had her on the show. Her poll was considered the gold standard and, and it was, it was off. It wasn't by off by as much as I think people are, are sort of blowing out of proportion, but certainly, you know, she had Trump up. And so when you get the order wrong of the top two, you know, people will, will ask questions. And, um, and she came out pretty quickly with a postmortem. And one of the things that she pointed to was I think in, in her poll, they only pegged evangelicals at something like 47% of the Iowa caucus electorate on the Republican side. And the entrance polls conducted by the networks showed it something like almost two thirds of people who showed up to the Iowa caucus considered themselves an evangelical voter. So, you know, that right there is, has got to be a major driver that the polls just didn't capture how many evangelicals were going to turn out and turn out for Cruz. Right. And, and this may be because of the ground game. It may just, or as opposed to something inherently wrong with polling that just didn't reach evangelicals. I mean, uh, uh, the folks at SurveyMonkey, John Cohen and Mark Blumenthal, uh, released some data that they did internally that showed an increase, a surge in evangelicals also. So there's a real, you know, there seem to be a couple different data points here suggesting that, that that's really what happened. Whether that's reflecting Cruz's ground game or something else, we don't, we don't know exactly. It's hard to tell from where we sit, but, but that's clearly one. The other one is this, and I haven't seen a lot of people writing on this, but there have been a lot of studies leading up to this point suggesting that the more anonymous people are, 
they more likely they are to say they're going to vote for Trump. So Trump has uh, historically, I guess historically, past few months done better online in online surveys than in telephone surveys. Uh, there may be a social desirability bias to say you're not going to vote for Donald Trump for all the reasons that you might imagine. And so does voting in a caucus where you have to publicly declare yourself for Trump, therefore minimize, you know, lower his support? Is he, you know, is he going to get even less support if that requires standing up and saying, hey, look at me over here, I'm for Trump. Um, I, you know, I don't know if that plays a role, but I think it's something to consider. It's not something we can test. You know, that's something that <clears throat> is only, you know, we we can only theorize because we only have one way that Republicans caucus. But it, it seems like a plausible explanation. Uh, the other sort of theories are this question of uh, bottom tier reallocating. So um, one of the big question marks that's floating out there is, and I think I even said it on the show, is that, that, that people believe high turnout in Iowa benefits Trump because it means Trump is bringing out new voters to the polls. Well, what that misses and where I, I may have gotten things wrong is that Trump may be bringing a lot of people out to the polls, but it doesn't mean they're all voting for him. Uh, and so you saw uh, a lot of folks who kind of turned out and it seems as though People may have clustered around Cruz and Rubio, who had emerged again. You know, they were the two in that last Fox debate who got the 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 tough treatment, where you had the you know the Megyn Kelly montage of clips. If people were beginning to say, "Okay, this is kind of a two man race," you know, that means if you were if you liked Ben Carson or you liked Carly Fiorina, but you thought, "Gosh, we've really got to stop Donald Trump." suddenly someone like Marco Rubio looks more appealing or someone like Ted Cruz looks more appealing. Um, and so you you saw, you know, in that final uh, Anselzer Des Moines Register poll, people who were these kind of second or third tier candidates all got a couple of a couple more points. And so when you peel a point or two off of like a Chris Christie and whatever, and you reallocate it to a, a Cruz and a Rubio, that's another way that you can get this kind of shift at the end of people who on the phone said, yeah, I really like Ben Carson. And then they show up at the caucus. And because you're talking to your friends, you know, in line, somebody says, look, but we've got to stop Trump. And suddenly you go, OK, I think I'll caucus for Rubio because I agree. we got to stop Trump. Right. And you realize when you're there publicly, as opposed to on the phone, that you don't have a lot of fellow Ben Carson or Chris Christie or John Kasich voters there. So you might as well caucus with somebody who who might have a chance of winning. Um, that's not the case, you know, on the Democratic side, if, if the folks like Martin O'Malley, if you don't get enough votes, then you, you're forced to reallocate. I that. love the Democratic <laughs> process. It's so weird. It is a little bit anachronistic for sure. But um, but the Republican side doesn't have that. So you can say, hey, I'm, I'm the delegate for Jim Gilmore and you can't you can't stop me uh, from from, you know, declaring my support for him. That happens on the Republican side. You can't do that on the Democratic side. Nonetheless, it still may make sense. It's still there may be just a little bit of pressure for some folks or they may feel, you know, why am I bothering to caucus for Chris Christie? I'm just going to uh, support one of these other folks. And that would we, we can't tell for sure from the public data, but that would help 
I think Rubio, um, also potentially Cruz, depending on where people began, like Carson's folks, for example, some suggest we're, we're moving to Cruz. Um, and, but folks who maybe were voting for Kasich or Christie or Bush may have decided to vote for Rubio. Rubio wins, according to the entrance polls, with those who say that electability is most important to me. He's part of the quote unquote establishment lane, <laughs> which I find a funny phrase. I don't know how many voters say, hey, you know what? I prefer I drive in the establishment lane. You stay in your lane of, you know, reality show folks, or you stay in your lane of non-elected officials. I'm going to be in the establishment lane, like as if they're at the airport or driving in the <laughs> HOV lane. Um, but anyway, that said, establishment lane folks probably would have, uh, you know, you could see how that kind of reallocating even just a little bit at the margins would help Cruz or Rubio. Um, the other thing, and this is what a lot of the outlets that were writing about this the past couple of days were talking about, is this just movements. This, you know, things change. The last polls that came out on Saturday um, don't reflect changes that might have happened between Saturday and Monday. And so we're going to have to link to this and stuff in the show notes, as we always do. John Cohen and Mark Blumenthal from SurveyMonkey. Uh, Mark Blumenthal has been on the show before. Carl Bialik from 538. He's been on the show. Uh, Nate Cohen from New York Times hasn't been on the show. Welcome to Cotton Mom. We'd love to have you. They've all written about this uh, in the last day or so, all suggesting that there's been a, that there was movement, that some of the polls that actually had later field dates than the Des Moines Register poll um, actually showed a race a little bit closer to what ended up happening. Um, your, your results at Echelon, Kristen, also suggested that Trump was getting fewer were mentions online the last few days that might also confirm this finding um you know what do you think what do you think of, of this theory that there was real movement happening i'm i'm always skeptical of the late breaking surge argument because in a way it absolves pollsters of any obligation to actually be right um you know we said that you know, this is part of the reason why folks like gallup have stopped doing the horse race altogether because Ultimately, at the end of the day, there's an election that tells you if you were right or wrong. Um, and if if you can always blame a late-breaking surge, then you really never have an obligation to be right because you can always just claim, oh, there was a late-breaking surge. And again, you know, we've we saw a late-breaking surge used as an excuse in the UK elections. It was a big excuse that was used in the big polling misses in Eric Cantor's race in Virginia. Although in that case, they, you know, they didn't poll for the two weeks leading up to the election. So it's a little more credible if your poll was done two weeks before election day than if it was done three days before election day. Right. But nonetheless, in this case, we have other data points beyond just the polls and beyond just the result that do suggest some of this potential movement. So um, in addition to uh, the entrance polls that showed people who made a decision toward the very end tended to break for Cruz and Rubio instead of Trump, you also had a lot of these digital analytics. We've been following this for a while where you can see, um, you know, every time Trump does something that's a little bit crazy, he gets a bigger share of discussion online. And then that always sort of lines up with him going up in the polls for a candidate like Trump, who is so uniquely fueled by attention rather than organization. Um, looking at digital analytics is actually a kind of interesting barometer of how he might do. Uh, it might work less well for someone like Cruz, whose campaign is based very heavily on organization. Um, but Trump, you know, when all of a sudden you see Trump falling out of the headlines and Trump doesn't participate in that Fox debate and he does his rally, but, you know, people are all focused on on Cruz and Rubio, Cruz and Rubio. And 
uh, all of a sudden, you know, maybe it suggests that the Trump mania faded just a little and just enough to bring about this result. So you can look at things like Google search trends. How many people in the state of Iowa the night before the caucuses are going, okay, I'm going to Google all these guys and gal, and I'm going to learn all about them, and I'm going to decide who I want to vote for. If people aren't Googling about Trump, but they're Googling about Cruz and Rubio to decide between the two of them and figure out their record, that's why these metrics are 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 a valuable additional piece of information. Yeah, absolutely. And we'll link to all of that stuff in our show notes. And, uh, you know, the thing that's interesting about the late breaking surge, I mean, that seemed to be the consensus emerging this week. When we've looked at, though, the analysis of previous elections where that was used as an explanation, they didn't really find this sort of right before the election momentum really to explain most of what was happening, why the polls were so different from the final result. The UK election, they released a report a few weeks ago that this was not really what they thought was the the key the key driver between the discrepancy of the polls and the final result. They really thought it was more of a sampling issue and much less of a movement issue. When we had Scott Keeter on the show from Pew a few weeks ago, they did a very elaborate study where they actually surveyed people in September, so really pretty far out from the election, and then found out who was a verified voter and found out how they voted and also looked at um, how that changed and what explained uh, the differences between their polls and the final results. And and there it was not really so much people changing their minds. It was more of a sampling who you include and who you don't include. So but those are not this election. That, those were other elections. So so I think there's probably this probably had something to do with what happened. But, I, you know, I don't know if that's the only thing that we can say. Uh, was the reason that the polls were a little bit different. Um, You know, one thing that Nate Silver wrote that bounced around a little bit is that it's just simply hard to poll here, basically. He just said it's tough. This is one of the toughest places to poll. Um, it had The caucus had record Republican turnout, but, you know, it was 170,000 people, 7% of eligible voters in Iowa. Um, it's something that really rewards being able to literally meet your voters, um, you know, a, a D.C. shadow senator, former se- shadow senator that I know, uh, said that he received more 6,000 more votes than Ted Cruz did in all of Iowa, which I think is pretty fascinating. <laughs> and uh, the Washington Post had a pretty cool visualization to look at. You know, here's America. They have a dot or a pixel to represent 10,000 voters. And, you know, here's all of America. And then, you you know, here's, uh, here's Iowa. And here are people who are eligible to vote in Iowa. Here are Democrats in Iowa. Here are Republicans in Iowa. And so you get down to like the just couple of dots that represent uh, Ted Cruz voters in Iowa. So it, it really is. We're, we're really talking about a very, very small group of people in the scheme of things. And that just simply makes it harder. I mean, that's, you know, that may seem like a punt, but it, it just simply makes it harder. Uh, and then one of the other final things that we think is is a big, you know, something just to keep in mind, folks on this show, when we had our interview with Chuck Todd and with others have have all noted that we over rely on the horse race, that we treat the horse race as the reason for being of all of these polls. Um, When really sort of internals are things that can tell us, give us a lot more of a clue about how an election might play out. Um, And that I think if you're a reporter, it's the internals uh, far more than than the top lines of the ballot test that can help point you in the direction of interesting storylines uh, to discuss. Um, you know, the news coverage is always the top lines, but I think the story is better underneath. And so, you know, Ann Selzer, she also came out and said, you know, she she wasn't quite, you know, she's 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 kind of OK being just like the silver standard because, you know, 
the, the, the horse race isn't everything. Um, and you know, I, I, I think that, that, that we have gotten so caught up in having so many of these horse race polls and we aggregate them and we treat them as truth instead of looking at them for what they are, understanding that, you know, within any of these surveys, even ones that are well conducted, you've got margin of error, you've got, you know, the uncertainty that comes with presenting one turnout scenario. Uh, and, and so, you know, I, I think in the end, what we're trying to say is maybe be a little easier on the pollsters. Right. Uh, <laughs> that, 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 yeah, it's, it's not great that Ted Cruz overperformed and Donald Trump underperformed, but this was this was not a like systemic, epic polling failure on the scale that we saw, say, in 2012. This was not like driven by, oh, my gosh, they didn't call enough cell phones or something like that. This was just you are tackling a really difficult task. And oftentimes media organizations are doing it without the benefit of things like previous caucus lists. And so you've, you've just got a really tough task ahead of you. Right. And, you know, even... Now, with the major proliferation of people who cover polls, obviously, you have more polls, you have more people covering polls. I mean, we just cited five, six, seven articles about polls this week alone. Still, most of these outlets, ourselves included, are covering the horse race. It's it's difficult to really get traction and, you know, f- find the space and to dig deep behind beneath the, the horse race when you look at the forecasts and the projections. Those are all talking about the horse race. They're they're rarely talking about the favorability or the percent of people who say, you know, I'd be comfortable if that person was the nominee or, you know, I, I've made up my mind. I'm not going to change my mind. Even some of those basic questions without even really digging even deeper beyond that, which is what an internal poll would do. Those are things that just ultimately don't always make it into the stories about what's happening in the race. And, and I think that's where people get disappointed that, that the number is not exactly on the nose. People want to believe there's this polling oracle out there that if somebody just figured out how to do it properly, then, you know, finally, they people would know for sure what's going to happen before it happens. But, you know, it just simply doesn't work that way because people don't know who they're going to vote for or whether they're going to vote until it actually happens. So um, it's, uh, you know, you have a universe that doesn't exist yet that you're trying to measure, as Scott Keeter said. Yeah. Um, one other thing I just want to do talk about very, very briefly for our listeners is this question of entrance and exit polls. So on uh, caucus night, you had uh, the early entrance polls come out. So, you know, when that happens, it's the, the networks have been interviewing people as they go into their caucus sites at a, a variety of different selection of, of caucus of precincts. And then they aggregate those results. And throughout the night, as real results come in from the precincts they sampled, they reweight the data. They, they take this what is ultimately not a perfect random sample, um, somewhat intentionally so, and then sort of massage that data over the course of the night. Um, weighting it back to what we know really happened in a precinct. And so one thing that just drives me crazy, and I promise this is the end of my rant on this, is when you see somebody tweeting or posting about early entrance polls or early exit polls, don't buy into it too much because that data is raw. It is unweighted. Um, The unweighted early entrance polls on Monday night had Trump way up on Cruz. It was Trump 29, Cruz 22. And of course, as the night went on, we saw that that was not even close to the case. Um, so everybody just be very cautious. Don't freak out if on 
uh, election night, all of a sudden an early exit poll wave comes out and it shows your candidates not doing very well. Don't listen to early waves of entrance or exit polls. Wait until there's real precinct data in and you can look at the appropriately weighted data later on. I don't think anybody's going to take that advice, I'm afraid. Once something, End rant. Once, End of rant. Some, once something's at, once there are some numbers on Twitter, people just want to RT it and say, you know, well, I'm not saying I this is true. I'm just passing it along. You know, in the olden days, back when I had to go to the internet room, you know, people would call each other to give them preliminary, essentially half-baked exit poll numbers and you just call around and just scribble stuff on pieces of paper. And so, and that seemed pretty worthless because, you know, by the time it got to you, or at least certainly by the time it got to me, my early twenties, <laughs> it was guaranteed to be wrong at that point. Right. But that now that stuff just ricochets around uh, so quickly, but um, the, I think what we can expect on the Republican side, in particular, New Hampshire, you've already had several candidates drop out since then. You had um, uh, Rand Paul announced that he's dropping out. You had Rick Santorum announced that he's dropping out. You have Mike Huckabee uh, dropping out. Ben Carson said that he was going home because he needed fresh laundry, which is <laughs> I mean, I, it's like my favorite. My I was at a friend's house watching <laughs> the returns come in. Uh, we had like CNN on and I, it was like Wolf Blitzer or somebody reading this statement like we've just gotten this statement in from the Carson campaign. And when he read that line, I will never forget the look on my oh friend's my faces as like that this isn't a real thing, right? Yeah. That was Is a, this a real thing? That was a printed <laughs> statement. I mean, I, that's I mean, that wasn't like somebody just said it as a joke in a tweet because they thought it'd be funny. Somebody like cuddled and said, okay, I'm going to say that. All right. Is this good? Sure. Okay. Go. You know, somebody had to decide that that was what the statement was going to be and okay it and authorize it. So anyway, that's a sign, another sign, if you needed one, that he's really not quite ready for prime time, um, or at least what used to be considered being ready for prime time. So I don't, I don't, I think he's done. Um, so that does, you know, that does mean you have a winnowed field uh, and a really a different whole set of front runners. You know, you have Christie and Kasich who have been doing quite well in New Hampshire to see how they do um, with Bush and Fiorina, perhaps, you know, you know, this is sort of the, one of their last chances to really sh uh, show that they can, um, that they're not underperforming still. Um, and then see how Rubio and Cruz uh, move off of their, you know, victories or exceeding expectations from Iowa with Trump still continuing to be, be in the lead in New Hampshire. So those are the things that people are going to be looking, uh, looking for. Um, the one thing is that, you know, another wrinkle in all of the uh, polling here in Iowa is that when you have so many candidates, your odds of the numbers being off are higher because people support a variety of candidates. You know, they, they're deciding between a few candidates. I mean, this is something that Neil Newhouse said when he came on the show months ago that a lot of voters had three or four different candidates that they were interested in. And, and that, that could still be true. And that, that's part of how movement and error happens that, that leads to different, different divergent results. So this will be, that'll be slightly less true in New Hampshire where you have already a, a, a group of, a group of candidates who've left the field. I'm really going to be interested to see uh, how many people who are these independent voters decide to participate in the Republican caucus versus the Democratic one. If the Democratic one looks like Bernie Sanders is going to just crush it there because this is Bernie territory and so they figure they'd rather go maybe try to stop Trump in a Republican primary. Um, that's that's the very interesting sort of X factor in New Hampshire. Um, 
but then, you know, even beyond New Hampshire, you've then got South Carolina, which is a state where uh, the, the buzz is that if Jeb Bush is going to make a comeback, that'll actually be where it is, perhaps even more than New Hampshire, because he's got folks like Lindsey Graham. Um, but I, I'm I'm very excited for New Hampshire because it's also it's just this completely different electorate um, that you have all of these ev- evangelicals in Iowa. And then New Hampshire is one of the least evangelical states in the country that you have the, just the, the issues that matter in Iowa and New Hampshire are different the type of campaign you need to run to appeal to voters in Iowa and New Hampshire is so different. The type of candidate and the sort of persona that appeals in Iowa and New Hampshire is theoretically supposed to be different. So um, this is, but with all of these things dropping out, I mean, this is a big reason why we needed to re-record this episode because you had, so you've had this such a big slew of people dropping out and Santorum endorsing Rubio and just all of this crazy stuff unfold. Um, it will be very interesting to see when these tracking polls knock these names out, where do these people get reallocated? Um, and and, and I, the second thing that I think is the big X factor. And so this morning I was on Morning Joe. Donald Trump was on the show doing a phone interview. And I was so excited, Margie. I thought oh my I was going to get to ask him a question about polls. I had it written down. Oh, and sometimes they let panelists on the show, yes. random panelists like me, ask the, the main guest a question. I was so ready what to ask your Trump question? about his polls. What was well, your luckily, question? Luckily, Joe then asked my, the question I was going to ask, which is, so, Mr. Trump, you are now saying that the Des Moines Register poll overestimated you and that actually depressed support from your supporters. It made them think that your win was inevitable and that they didn't need to turn out. Oh. Are you? Do you plan to continue using your strong poll numbers in New Hampshire as something that you talk about a lot, or are you worried about the risk of the same thing happening in New Hampshire? You overstating your poll numbers and it potentially causing your supporters to stay home. I like it was just it's it's so fascinating to me to have seen Trump go from well I'm number one my poll numbers are great look at every poll I'm so far ahead I, it's huge it's huge uh, to all of a sudden being like well I wish that that Des Moines Register poll hadn't shown me up by so much because it really depressed turnout among my voters that. Like, like Ann Selzer's poll is not the reason you lost the Iowa caucus guy. I mean, <laughs> um, okay. But Ann but, Selzer's but, poll is supposed to like the 7,000 things you've said that have upset tons of like, Republican guy, primary voters. <laughs> you were the one that screwed up the expectations management game. Let's be crystal clear here. Yeah. Um, but, but in that segment, Trump actually did have a pretty good analysis of the polls, which was like one of the first times I've ever heard him do this where he was he was kind of normal in this interview and he said things like well it's harder to pull a caucus than it is a primary and so i think you know if my support was overstated in iowa it's probably less so likely to be overstated in new hampshire but we don't know we'll see um it was this really thoughtful thing and like no sooner had the show ended but trump went on his crazy go nuts university like just bonkers twitter rant about how ted cruz is stealing the election and blah 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 and i'm I'm so fascinated because when we taped the show the first time, Trump was in like sedate Zen Trump mode. Like yeah. he gave that very calm second place speech in Iowa. He had not engaged in a crazy, you know, bonkers Twitter rant yet. It was like, ooh, are we seeing a new Trump? Uh, and sure enough, he has remembered that he thrives on being in the headlines. And so here we are. Yeah. Yeah. I- <laughs> 
<laughs> no, he went back. He went back to the full. To the we full have reverted crazy. back into the original universe where Trump is Trump instead of the alternate universe where Trump is a normal candidate. You know, there's nothing I hear voters say more often in focus groups is that they want a sore, sore, angry loser as president. (laughs) It's really, really common. I can't I can't overestimate the, the overstate the number of times people have said that. Well, so now let's we'll take a pause for, on all of the 2016 stuff and just talk briefly about what else is happening in culture. There is a world out there besides this presidential election. What? What? <laughs> Crazy talk. But there is a world out there. Um, and there's a poll conducted by the Washington Post and the Kaiser Family Foundation um, trying to get a sense of what people think about the quote unquote women's issues and the label of feminism. And I was most fascinated by the finding that feminism has positive favorables. But when you ask people, do you think that feminism has a good or bad reputation? A majority think that feminism has a bad reputation. What do you make of this, Margie? I mean, so there's a lot that I think about this. So the first is feminism is on the upswing. So that's good. That's nice. So feminism in the mid-90s, most people, or at least in the late 90s, uh, plurality were unfavorable toward feminism. Now you have a majority are favorable toward feminism. Not a lot of difference between women and men. 60% of women, 57% of men are favorable toward feminism. I think that's pretty exciting. I think we should, you know, I think that to me as a feminist, been for a long time, even when it was, it was unpopular, literally when it was unpopular. I think was that your a, first TV? That was your first TV, Chiron, right? That was my first TV, Chiron, like a uh, college feminist. And then, and I also had like my first political t-shirt said, uh, kiss Reagan goodbye, women's vote 84. <laughs> I was pretty proud of when I was 10, right? So this is this goes way back for me, I have to say. So I'm glad to see that finally the polls are catching up. So the women's movement receives actually even stronger ratings. So, you know, while people are favorable toward feminism, when asked, does feminism have a good or bad reputation, which is kind of a strange question, this reputation, and I find it sort of vaguely gendered, like does this word about ladies have a good reputation or a bad reputation? But putting that aside, a majority say bad reputation, but the women's movement is seen as having a good reputation. So there's still this sense that the word feminism is somehow, you know, conjures up some kind of bad feelings or still that sense that it's it's not quite as strong as it could be. But what's interesting to me is that feminism is your, at some level, being a feminist, that's your internal belief system. The women's movement seems that's something we do collectively. So I find it interesting that this collective movement, which seems you would think have a little bit more organization to it, um, or at least how people think about it, is actually seen as better than just your own personal feminist worldview. Or maybe maybe it's that feminism seems like it defines an ideology, whereas the women's movement is a cause. And maybe that's why it's different that I can say, okay, the women's movement is fighting for X, Y, and Z. But feminism is let's get offended because, you know, Matt Damon said something about women's pay in Hollywood. Right. I, I don't I don't know. I mean, uh, but having done studies on this before where I've seen women, uh, you know, a large number of younger women who kind of are unsure of what to make of the feminism label in their own lives. Um, it doesn't surprise me that people would, you know, see it as perhaps more polarizing 
or think it's more polarizing right. anyways than the women's movement, which isn't a phrase that I think you even hear that much Maybe anymore. that's why it has a good reputation because people aren't sure what to make of it. And then, you know, the other thing is if you look at some specific proposals that are seen as part of the women's movement or feminism, if you take aside abortion and birth control, which are, as you might expect, a little bit more divisive, obviously abortion more so than birth control, all the kinds of pay equity, women's equality, financial equality uh, types of proposals all are overwhelmingly popular. They're all popular, more favor than opposed. So those components of the women's movement are enormously popular. It's something that, you know, I've argued for a long time. You see a lot of candidates talking about it, at least on the left. This broadening the definition of what we think of as women's issues is something that uh, candidates on both sides of the aisle could use to their advantage. It would help Republicans who maybe are, you know, at odds with some women on things like abortion and birth control to have this broader definition of women's issues. But um, they may or may not be reading the study or listening to the pollsters, but free advice to Democrats and Republicans. Uh, so then let's also one sort of final note on this is that in this study, they broke out some of the cross tabs. And for women who were 18 to 34, they were the sort of most aware of the feminist movement um, that 64 percent said they'd heard something about feminism in the past year. Sixty nine percent say there is an active feminist movement and 45 percent said that they had expressed some kind of a women's rights view on social media. Do you think this is like the Lena Dunham, Taylor Swift, Beyonce thing? I mean, that's what people conjecture. I don't well, know. Well, I mean, every so true. often you'll see a st- story like Amy Schumer right. says something, you know, tells it like it is. Jennifer Lawrence speaks truth to Hollywood for right. underpaying her. or um, So I think that's a piece of it. I, I think that the like celebrities coming out as feminists. But I mean, in very different ways, like while Lena Dunham is, you know, out there on the trail for Hillary Clinton and is talking about these issues all the time, like you are probably never going to hear Taylor Swift come out and take a stance on these issues in part because she's a savvy businesswoman and she doesn't want to alienate people who like her of any political view. So, I mean, there are some people for whom taking these political stances is like a part of their public persona. And there are others who I think shy away from it because – they want to be – they don't want to be tinged with this stuff. It's not one of their squad goals? It is not a squad goal. <laughs> it should be. Remember, plus, Katy Perry endorsed Hillary Clinton and Taylor Swift and Katy Perry have beef. So, you know, I guess – Lena Dunham, I thought – anyway, I can't Well, Le- uh, Lena Dunham is good friends with Taylor Swift. That is true. And Lena Dunham's boyfriend produced a couple of the songs on Taylor Swift's album. So they are, they are good friends. But Taylor Swift's squad, I mean, is legion. Swifties are legion. We are everywhere. I see. <laughs> Margie's looking at me like, uh, I'm going to break out my... What's happening? I'm going to start clutching my pearls here. Well, minute. now let's have our Ask a Millennial segment. So uh, Deloitte put out a survey of millennials um, trying to learn a little bit about millennial habits. Um, in they do the... this every year. And so the big number, uh, uh, let's ask a millennial. Uh, do we have any around here? Ah, there's Kristen. Oh, hey. <laughs> How's it going? Our resident millennial expert and author of The Self vote available where all fine books about millennials are sold. Um, How many millennials are expected to leave their job in the next two years? Uh, So we have 13 percent who think they're going to leave their job in the next less than six months and a total of 66 percent who think they're going to be out sometime within the next uh, next five. Is that five years? Um, Next five years, I think. So you've got I mean, it's just 
it's really striking that there are so many millennials, even though the job market is supposedly really bad for them. You would think on the one hand that would mean, hey, if you get a job, hang on to it because you don't you don't want to leave it. Um, but here they're really showing that only 27 percent uh, say that they expect to stay in a job for uh, you know any sort of reasonable amount of time. You've got 11 um, percent who think that they'll be in their job who say that they'll never leave. You've got five, which that seems weird, too. <laughs> you should leave at some point. You shouldn't. I mean, I love what I do. Maybe but it's like their first day. Probably not. I mean, maybe it is their first day. You have 5% who think they'll be in their job for over 10 years. You've got 11% who think they'll be in their job five to 10 years. The bulk, 22%, two to five years. But again, this is a, a pretty sizable chunk. I had a friend who recently had an intern who started, came two days, and then said, no, I'm sorry. I just think this isn't working and left. And she was like, I hate millennials. And I'm like, not a, hashtag not all millennials. <laughs> you know, there this, are terrible people in all generations. This is maybe why this was one of the most popular things we tweeted out because lots of people then tweeted all kinds of snarky millennial ah, millennials are terrible things you know and meanwhile millennials want the same things out of their jobs as everyone else does i mean well this study did not compare millennials to everybody else so i don't know what percentage of non-millennials expect to leave their job in two years although they did say that parents seem less likely to leave than non-parents so that makes me think there's just the yeah. stability of being older and so on but millennials who feel better about the leadership opportunities of their job are less likely to say that they're on their way out than those who say, you know, I've, I don't have good opportunities for leadership positions or I'm not encouraged for leadership roles. Those folks are more likely to say, I'm out of here soon. So anyway, we, as always, we put the links to these things in our show notes so you can check it out. So anyway, so we thought maybe a good time to check in with Super Bowl polling, which, of course, there is some. I, I suppose there'll be a couple little bit more on the way headed into the Super Bowl. There'll probably be stuff about the ads next week following the Super Bowl that we can go back to. But National Retail Retail Federation, always our favorite go-to source for holiday polling, found that a third say the football game is the most important part of the day. 18% say the commercials. That's That would be me. And another 5% saying enjoying the fun food is for them. No, not for me. The food is the least. I like the food the least. I For me, it's for sure the commercials. Yes. I, I The commercials are what I care about the most, depending on which team is in the game, as we've talked about on the show before. I do love football, but... This year, it's the uh, you've got Cam Newton versus Peyton Manning. Good quarterback matchup, but I don't feel like deeply about either of these teams. So I will be watching it mostly because it is a cultural event that is fascinating to take part in. Interestingly, for the halftime show, is that because then you will be like millennials who are more right. likely to say, I like well, the, the halftime show. show is sometimes great and iconic and sometimes it's super weird. Like I have very fond memories of I think it was Britney Spears and Aerosmith. Like that was a cool halftime show or you had the one I think it was Michael Jackson where like he was supposedly on the side of the stadium and then all of a sudden boom he like teleported to the middle of the stadium. You've had these cool iconic moments but then you have like some weird ones. And like not weird in a good way. And this year it's going to be Coldplay. So it's be fine. Which is you know they have to have somebody that appeals to everybody. Yeah. And Coldplay. I saw on Twitter today. At least it's not Nickelback. Was what someone was saying. So <laughs> I think that we have seen polling on Nickelback. I think yeah. PPP did something. Well, on. wasn't there a, a like 
Trump is the Nickelback of <laughs> presidential candidates. Like most people are like, I don't know anyone who likes Nickelback. But like Nickelback still has these incredible record sales. And you're like, someone out there must be listening to Nickelback. Right. And who I, are you? Who's buying these albums? And that's I, how people felt about Trump. Like, who are you? Who are these people that support Trump? I remember seeing this was now a while ago, seeing like <laughs> Mayor Emanuel had a release a statement like the mayor does not like Nickelback. Like somebody like called the office and said the mayor like Nickelback. Anyway, that's a bit of a digression. Eight percent plan to buy a new TV. Eleven percent plan to buy new apparel. What if I just went out and bought a new dress? Like, hey, this is my <laughs> this is my Super Bowl black cocktail dress. <laughs> I'll be part of the eight percent. New team apparel. Okay. I guess that's to be team apparel, right? So that is not going to happen. Okay, so the key findings. Iowa, it was nice knowing you. And poll skeptics just try to make it to New Hampshire without getting another fix. And don't tweet exit polls early. Sorry. <laughs> Go ahead, Margie. <laughs> I mean, unless you block Kristen, then, then, you, can, then you can do it, I guess. No, um, just don't. <laughs> Donald Trump, if you're listening, which we think you might be, you're always welcome to, to uh, talk about polling with us uh, if this presidential candidacy thing doesn't work out for you. Um, ask a millennial, perhaps, to stay at their jobs. And the Super Bowl turns 50 and the pollsters turn 50. You can find us on Twitter at, at the pollsters you can, or thepolsters.com where you can find our show notes. Individually, we're at K. Soltis Anderson and at Margie O'Meara. You can also follow us on Facebook throughout the week where we'll post links to the stories that we think are interesting and might want to chat about on next week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to us on your favorite podcatcher and make sure that you're writing reviews if you have not done so so far. We will love you forever for it. Thanks so much and have a great week. Thanks. Bye.